Great. Well, we're going to focus on this little a concept. We have beheld his glory. And um, I, I said last Sunday how much I was enjoying just meditating on this passage. I'll tell you how it works. Dave comes up with an idea, and uh, he'll, he'll set out the sort of sermons, and he'll say, Stuart, when are you free? Or, Stuart, will you do this? And I go, look at my diary, and I go, yep, I'll do it. So he said, and Christmas Day, will you do Christmas Day? I said, yep, I'll do it. So that's how it works. And then... Um, he said, here's the topic. I said, great topic. I love these verses. I've come back to them again and again to preach, uh, not just for Christmas, but other times. And just often in my own reflections, just come back to this chapter one of John. It sets up so much amazing stuff to understand Jesus. And uh, these couple of verses are absolutely critical. And this little phrase, we've beheld his glory. Uh, I've been just uh, reveling in it for uh, the last few weeks as I've woken up. Sometimes in the middle of the night, I've woken up. And I've had nothing else to think about. You know, sometimes you wake up and worry. I just woke up and thought, this is just a great verse. And uh, so I've been very excited personally. And I hope I can give you a little sense of why that's captured my uh, vision in my meditations. It focuses uh, on the idea of glory. And it's not a word we know very well. It's not one we use too much. But glory is the Hebrew word is kavod. Kavod. And it, it means the, the weightiness the significance, the value, the importance of a thing. And what that does is that leads then, if you get something that's really important, really weighty, it really matters, that leads to splendor, a sense of, oh my goodness. That's the reaction of people to glory. I don't know if you've seen glorious things very often. You know, maybe gone through and seen the, the crown jewels in England. And you look through, oh my God, and then you go along a little bit further, and you go, oh, look at that one, you know, the sparkle of it. You just think, that how, how could they get such big diamonds and jewels? How does that happen? We have this sense, and the thing about glory and the splendor of it, it radiates out. You can't help but notice it. It's not like you can just kind of turn your back on this amazing thing. It's not just that it's amazing, but it, it's a thing that really matters. It's not just a curiosity and an attraction. It's a thing that really deeply matters. I was trying to think of what sort of human examples we have. Um, I guess, you know, like you're on, you're on holidays and you, you go over a hill and you see this amazing mountain or this lake or whatever it is. You say, oh, wow, look at that. I still have memories of decades ago, Marion, decades ago. <laughs> We're old. Marion and I holidaying in the Lake District in England. And it wasn't even like midsummer and glorious for summer. It was, it was winter. But we would come over each hill and oh, look at that. Look at that. Or sometimes there'll be a word that has such weightiness to it. I was just reflecting recently on Churchill's speech he gave just after the Second World War in the US. He was at a, um, at a college there. And he used the phrase for the first time, an iron curtain has descended on the continent of Europe. And that was a predictive of the next 45 years of the politics of the world. An iron curtain, a weighty word, and a predictive word, and it came true for 45 years. Or mostly it's about a person, a glory. You get overwhelmed by a person. I don't know if you've had that experience. You know, just every now and then you meet someone and you go, oh gosh, they are an incredible person. They are so smart. Not pretentious smart, just really smart. Or, or really brave. You know, uh, we recently walked through the uh, War Museum down in, uh, in Canberra. And sometimes as I'm reading the stories of how brave people are, and I try to put myself in the situation, I can't do it. I cannot imagine myself 
doing what those, oh, you know, I have the kind of Hollywood moments. I think, oh, yeah, I could do that. No, no, I couldn't. But the bravery that you see sometimes of how people sacrifice self, and I just stand in awe of that. There is, there is a glory about it. And yes, brings a tear to my eye. And I, you know, try and wipe it away and pretend it's not happening, but it is. Well, what we are confronted with here is the ultimate glory, the ultimate person, the creator God. That's the point of this passage. We've beheld that glory. Not just a, a word or a, a place or another person, but God the creator. The unique and ultimate glory of all things, God himself the one of greatest significance, the most weighty of all beings, God himself. We've beheld that glory. That's what John's trying to communicate. Well, as I was reflecting on this passage, the next thing I started thinking about was when else have people um, encountered that glory in the, the Bible? And there are only a few little examples of them. At some level, we all get to encounter it. There's that verse in uh, Psalm 19. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's a beautiful verse. The heavens declare, and that, that goes back to that idea of seeing some amazing part of creation. And it's as though when you look up to the heavens and you see this incredible stuff, it, it points beyond itself. That's the idea, that there is a glory that is shining out, that, that there's something behind that. That is God himself, the creator. But you have other instances as well where uh, it doesn't take long to realise as you read through some of these passages that there's a strange kind of attraction-repulsion thing happening with glory. And it happens again and again. Sometimes you can see that glory. Other times you just cannot even look, bear to look at it. Let me give you a couple of examples. Moses in Exodus 33. Uh, he says he couldn't see the face of God. God says, you just can't look at this face. If you are to, to, to look at the face, you burn up, I guess, is the implication. Have a look at this, uh, this passage. Uh, Moses said, he's been talking about the Ten Commandments, he says, show me your glory. You know, get, give me a sense of the weightiness of who you are that's speaking to me, that is giving this. I don't know, maybe he needs the power to go on in his ministry, in his life, in his, in his leadership. And the Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. But... God said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. See the, the level of significance here. So this is what happens. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. I mean, it's, a, it's an anthropomorphism is the thing. It's as though God is a person there doing this. And, and he says, you can't even look at me. You'll die. That's the, that's the deal. Too weighty, too much glory will overcome you. But then there's this strange dilemma, this dynamic that happens in the Old Testament where you, you can't see, you can see God. It's really interesting to look at. So Deuteronomy 5, you've got this passage where uh, this is after they've escaped from Egypt. They're now going into the promised land. Uh, Moses retells the Ten Commandments a second time, hence the term of the book Deuteronomy, second law, the, the second giving of the law. 
And then he recounts the story of the experience of these people's uh, forebears. And he recounts it in the, in the first person as though it was those standing there. You are these people. It actually happened to your parents and grandparents, but you are these people is the idea. And he says this, when you heard the voice out of the darkness, this is up on the mountain, it was ablaze with fire. All the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me and you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we've seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. That's amazing. I mean, here they are, they are dumbstruck by this reality. They could actually get to see God on this occasion. Goes on. But now, why should we die? See, as soon as they say, yeah, we saw it. No, no, we can't cope again. It's too much. We can't cope with it. This great fire will consume us and we, if we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord... So they're saying to Moses, you go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We'll listen and obey. You get the fear that's built into this? We, we just can't... We, you know, we saw all that fire and blast up on the mountain, but we just can't cope with it again. So you be our intermediary is the idea. One of the great passages that was read for us, Isaiah 6. Uh, this is an incredible passage. I come back to it in my own reflections again and again on what it meant for who God is and what, it, what the, the society is about and what it means for Isaiah himself. In the year that King Uzziah dies, when your king dies in those days, that's a big deal. When there's no king on the throne, the king is off the throne and dead. That's the time that other nations attack. This is a point of not just personal concern for the king and his family, but for the whole nation, and Isaiah is a key part of that. He's, uh, he's clearly one of the nobles from a noble family and gets to speak to the king, and now King Uzziah dies. In that year, in that year, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The king on earth is dead, the king in heaven is still on his throne. That's the story. There is no thought that he's off his throne. There's no thought that, oh, we could be attacked now. God is gone. No, no, no. And notice the glory. that It's like no one else can fit in his, in his palace. The, the train of his robe, you know, it's so big, it fills the whole space. That's all this place for is God himself. Above him were the seraphim, uh, one of the angel types. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. Oh yeah, you can't look at this God. You'd better cover your eyes. Because even the angels will be burnt up. With two they covered their feet. Feet are kind of dirty things. No way could that be in front of God. And with two they flew. I guess they had to fly. There was nowhere else to stand. The temple was filled. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is not just a picture of what happens in the, the heavenly place. This is the whole earth is filled with his glory. Not everyone perceives it on earth, of course. But that's the reality they're declaring. Now notice the impact. There's God is there, which impacts the angels, which impacts the whole of creation. The next verse. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. It's like the creation can't quite cope 
with this, this cry of holy, holy, holy is the Lord. As they declare the whole earth is filled with his glory, everything starts to shake. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. You see that? What, what posture is he in now? I mean, he's on his face, isn't he? Woe to me, I am ruined. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Just occasionally we do in life, don't we? Woe to me, I am ruined. This is, this is the extraordinary experience of encountering God and he just knows he's undone. He just knows this is the deep crisis for him as a person. And I don't know that he would have had to reflect on the earlier passages that say, well, you can, you can't, you can't approach God, that sort of... No, no, this is just raw experience of encountering God. Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, immediately knows his sinfulness. And here he is in front of God. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. As the prophet, he bears the concern of all the people with him. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That is the same sort of worry that you saw earlier with those guys around the mountain. <coughs> then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. The altar, the place of sacrifice, of death, that brings forgiveness. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What an incredible linking of who God is, who we are, and the need for forgiveness. Attraction, repulsion, it's going on. Well, then you come to this passage in John's Gospel, and he's trying to capture what is it to talk about the Christmas event. How, how, he, he, he doesn't go into the, the shepherds. He doesn't go into the dreams for Joseph the sorts of things we've been looking at in Luke and Matthew's Gospel. He goes straight to that reality of who Christ is. And we've beheld his glory, he says. It's hardly to, hard to believe what he's actually trying to get at. It's the one that he's talking about in John 1.1. See, we're in verse 14, we've beheld his glory. But right at the very start, he has, in the beginning was the Word, later identified as Jesus, of course. And the Word was with God, and the word was God. And that with God, it's not like kind of side by side. It's face to face is the kind of idea. This intimate, close relationship, father, son, the word and God, close together, face by face. And there's this kind of shared glory is what shows up later in the book. As John writes later on and he recounts some of the things that Jesus says, he's kind of getting at this idea of there's a shared glory between one and the other. And it is this God, this word of God who comes to earth, that's the glory we perceive. That's what we get to behold in the Christmas event. And if we'd been hanging around the first century, that glory would have been walking down the dusty streets. We could have bumped shoulders, maybe not even realised the glory that we bumped into. That's a possibility. That incarnation, that becoming flesh of this glorious God allows us to bump into it and not even notice. And yet there is a glory. And John wants us to be aware of that. So much of John's teaching is about the Father and the Son. There are chapters, three or four of them, that bring in very definitely the Spirit. So it's not Binitarian, it's Trinitarian. But you have this relationship of Father and the Son as one of the key themes in John. He wants us to understand it. And he wants to know the intimacy of Father and Son. Because then we'll grasp what it is to behold the glory in Jesus. 
in John 14. Jesus is a night before he's killed. He's talking to the apostles, and Philip asks this question. He says, uh, you know, can you show us the Father? Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It makes no sense to say, show us the Father. You've seen me. The face-to-face with the Father guy. The mutual glorifying. John 17, Jesus goes on. You have this idea of, of the Son glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son. It's bound up with his death in particular. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And it's not just about to happen. Verse 4 of 17. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. We're right back to the foundation of all existence here. That the glory of the Father and the Son, that as they looked at each other, was a mutual glorifying. And we're invited into that. We come back to our theme. We've beheld his glory. True of the first disciples, but we're invited into that as well. When John wrote his gospel, he came towards the end and he, he wanted to sum up why he bothered to write this. And it is that we might enter the life of the mutually glorifying Father and Son. That by the Spirit we would enter into that life. And so in John 20, towards the end, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Gosh, there's some great ones in John. Read through it again. The signs, he calls them. Not not miracles, really, but signs. Many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Wow, there's so many to think of. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, you can enter the life of God and not be wiped out, not be destroyed, not be undone, not be ruined. This is the amazing thing for Christmas, that we enter through Christ into that life of God, the mutually glorifying Father and Son, the Spirit brings us into that. Such a beautiful and amazing thought. This is foundation of the earth stuff that we are brought into. And you remember the idea it's bound up with the, the angels touching the, the lips and purifying. It's about Christ and his death, that he will glorify God in his death, and that he offers life to us. He offers life to us. His life. Not just any old life we might have had otherwise, but his life we're brought into that. We have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. And he takes us to the Father, and we have life in his name. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this revelation. We wouldn't have known this except for what John has written. We wouldn't have known it except Christ came and revealed it to him. We wouldn't have known it but that Christ came for us and spoke these words. And was this person. Father we thank you for the salvation that comes from him. The the cleansing. The change. The new life that we're brought into. We thank you for this Christmas. We thank you for the, the privilege of reflecting on who you are. 
We thank you for the other events of the day that we'll enjoy for most of us, family and uh, lunches, other activities. We pray, Father, that in all of it we would have that sense of glory, your glory that we're invited into and not destroyed but participating in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.